0: thing that makes the average citizen puke. I look at the system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on?
1: I don't know about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't, I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him.
2: We are more than just one coin. We read the
0: world around this coin. Come Invention. come, come.
3: The evil has gone.
2: Welcome back to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined here today by Steve Jeffers, Yogi Polywell. And so we've been doing this podcast for just about two years now. We're celebrating our two year anniversary. We've been profiling a new billionaire every week, and uh, it comes at a very opportune time. This two year anniversary, Mm -hmm. because as of uh, Monday, February third, twenty twenty, that will be the Iowa caucuses uh, for the Democratic primary. And uh, in the event that Bernie Sanders wins those caucuses, that will be very bad for every single billionaire we have profiled. That will be a five alarm fire, you know, all hands on deck emergency. So we wanted to spend, you know, this and then the episode we do on the Patreon, this will be the last two episodes we release before we know who actually wins those Iowa caucuses. That's right. And we wanted to spend both of these episodes talking about, you know, a couple of the billionaires linked to Bernie Sanders' opponents oh. uh, in the Democratic primary. You know, this one we're going to talk about a couple billionaires uh, linked to Pete Buttigieg, uh, these Canadian billionaires Jerry Schwartz and Heather Reisman. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, next one we'll talk about a billionaire linked to uh, Joe Biden.
3: Ted... To add to the gravity of of today's episode, Um, as of of today, January 27th, the latest Iowa poll still shows Sanders in a slight lead at 26%, Biden's at 25%, and Buttigieg is in third at 22%.
2: Nice. Right. Like, I've basically compared this. Uh, Democratic strategists are like the uh, the Wehrmacht marching into Russia <laughs> where, you know, like they didn't sleep for like a month, but the country is so vast <laughs> that no matter how much effort, there's still more ahead of them. And they're, they're, you know, they're bringing out the Joe Rogan smears. Mm-hmm, they're like mm-hmm. finding old videos of Bernie saying the word wage slavery, the right. phrase wage slavery. That's right. But it's like there's there's still this vast country ahead of them and, you know, the the <laughs> Russian divisions just keep coming, and the polls just get worse and worse, and, you know, there there will be a lot of bunker suicides, is what I'm predicting here. You know, well. what people don't realize
1: is that there's a lot of hot girls in Iowa, and mm. all of those people are for Bernie. That's true. So, 90% of Iowa, hot girls.
3: Yeah. So, Judge uh, is either in second, or sorry, in third or fourth place, um, nipping at the heels of Warren, or in some cases overtaking her, mm-hmm. such as in the last two Iowa polls. Mm-hmm. So, um, he has, t- he has, I think he has a record for most billionaire supporters or no?
2: He's, uh, below Biden, actually. Yeah.
3: Oh, okay. So he's in, he's in the running.
2: Right. And that's actually kind of where I wanted to start this is because there is a Forbes article that I found was pretty interesting from November, 2019. Here are the billionaires funding the democratic presidential candidates. And this is, you know, a good introduction, uh, they go through the number of billionaires who have donated to each Democratic presidential candidate. According to Forbes, uh, roughly 20% of all American billionaires have donated, uh, either directly or through their spouses, to a Democrat uh, candidate for president. Mm-hmm. And they go through the number of supporters, and according to Forbes, uh, Joe Biden has 44 billionaires who have donated to him. Uh, Pete Buttigieg has 40 Uh, But it should also be noted that uh, Kamala Harris had 46. uh, So another, (laughs) another brilliant investment by the uh, uh, smartest and hardest working people in America.
1: Awesome! How bad billionaires are at guessing
2: which candidate is probably going to win. Mm -hmm.
1: The fucking worst.
2: Uh, Cory Booker had 45 billionaire supporters. (laughs) Uh, Also, rest in peace. Um, uh, Amy Klobuchar has 21, Elizabeth Warren has 6, and Bernie Sanders had 1, and the campaign returned the donation <laughs> when they found out they had 1. I was,
3: I was actually worried for a while that maybe one billionaire would actually get to sneak their donation in, right? and they wouldn't find it, and then the news people would be like, see, sure, sure, sure. you are supported by billionaires, I mean, even though it's 1 and it was a mistake.
1: Listen, whichever billionaire chose to donate to Sanders' campaign, we have a special Patreon tier for you, and only you. And if you want us to not do an episode on you, it's a it's just a flat fee, mm-hmm. and we will never talk about you on this show ever again. We'll even edit this part of the show out, just because we love and support your Patreon niche.
2: It is true. Giving us money to not do an episode on you is a much better investment than giving it to Bernie Sanders. Yeah. yeah. Because Bernie's still going to come after you, but we can be bought. People. That's right. We're reasonable. You saw Tom Steyer didn't give us the money. You saw what
1: happened to him. Oh, that motherfucker! We
2: had to end his presidential <laughs> campaign. We don't like to do this.
3: Fairlawn Capital is a household name now. <laughs>
2: Look, every day I don't get to play PSVR, I get more angry <laughs> and I take it out on the billionaires who are not funding our uh podcast on the Patreon special tier.
1: You know that one uh, VR game where you're just like slapping like shit to the beat? Mm-hmm. We should make one which is just billionaires slowly coming up to you and you're just fucking pounding them in the face. <laughs> you're just, just hitting pictures Just of a solid punch in the face as they are slowly walking up towards you and they're coming from all angles like a billionaire would. Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, you can make a Doom mod for VR. Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs> but it's all it's all billionaires' faces, <laughs> right? Your right. sacredness covered, right?
1: Just punching, fucking Bill Gates in the face, punching. Epstein a secret Epstein
2: uh, Easter egg penis in the face <laughs> <laughs> it's like the, the Bernie Sanders secret police training video <laughs> you gotta like it's like the army you gotta like remove uh, any sense that the enemy has humanity That's by right. getting kids to play drone video mm-hmm. games mm-hmm. Uh, before they go on to do stuff um, but as we mentioned, you know, so today we're going to talk about uh, one, a couple billionaires linked to Pete Buttigieg. On the Patreon side, we'll talk about one billionaire linked to uh, Joe Biden. But I think Pete Buttigieg is uh, an interesting topic to start with because, again, he's the mayor of South Bend, uh, Indiana. He won 10,000 votes mm-hmm. in his election to be the mayor. So how the hell does a person like that go to be one of the best-funded uh, candidates in the entire democratic primary this is a nobody in like a tiny uh, mayorship and uh, my personal theory on that is that Pete Buttigieg is the Jeffrey Epstein candidate <laughs> um, and I, I will just offer a couple pieces of support uh, for that thesis sure. um, one is uh, this guy named Orrin Kramer is a hedge fund millionaire we've talked about uh, we talked about him on the Jeffrey Epstein part two episode so, he uh, was a major Obama fundraiser. There was even a, a 2008 article called, uh, in the New York uh, uh, Observer, where they dubbed him, quote, the Obamasaurus, mm-hmm. because he said other <laughs> fundraisers were dinosaurs who were lining up with Hillary Clinton. Uh, gotcha. And he was, you know, the guy who was behind Obama. Um, the New York Times has recently described him as, quote, one of Pete Buttigieg's top fundraisers, unquote. And the story about Oren Kramer, just to go through it again, this is from the Daily Beast, um, Oren Kramer uh, met Jeffrey Epstein. uh, Oren Kramer is the founder of Boston Provident Hedge Fund. Um, Jeffrey Epstein put $30 million in there, um, and he said he wanted to invest several hundred thousand dollars from Alan Dershowitz. Uh, Again, quoting from the Daily Beast. But when the fund tanked the following year, Epstein called the founder, Orrin Kramer, and demanded, quote, one of us is going to make Alan whole, and if I have to do it, that is an outcome you will regret, unquote. Kramer agreed to restore Dershowitz's money if Epstein left the remainder of his investment in the fund. So this guy, who's, uh, according to the New York Times, one of Pete Buttigieg's top fundraisers, unquote, is threatened by jeffrey epstein and immediately yeah. returns alan dershowitz's money right so what the fuck is going on here <laughs> um and don't think too much about how many people are alleging that jeffrey epstein was uh, running a recording blackmail operation sure. uh that Orrin kramer was apparently threatened enough by to return his money well kramer might not have uh been somebody that uh, was being blackmailed
1: but he certainly burst in every room to see what was going on and uh <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, Kramer was the only guy Epstein didn't have a tape of him with somebody mm-hmm. underage He just had a tape of him saying the n-word <laughs> at a comedy club He just kept busting into rooms with Jerry Seinfeld
1: Dating 18 year olds mm-hmm.
2: And, again, you know, like anybody who's looked at the Epstein stuff knows there are a lot of allegations that he had, like, secret recording equipment and recording, you know, studios for this kind of stuff. So, I mean, it's just very bizarre. Okay, but
1: billionaires are idiots, like we've talked about Mm -hmm. several times. And recording equipment is uh, surprisingly simple, if not moderately sophisticated. So, how hard is it to catch a billionaire being an idiot? Uh, probably not that hard. I mean,
2: the only thing that's hard is maintaining it and using it as blackmail, which Jeffrey Epstein perfected. Yeah, no, you you really do need the level of intelligence to think that Cory Booker is going to be the next president of the United States to, <laughs> to walk into a room with like several blinking red lights on the corners <laughs> right. and uh, have sex with a child. Like, obviously, what some of the stuff
1: uh, being alleged with Epstein and Mossad, he may have had some equipment that was moderately sophisticated, but we literally record on devices more sophisticated than what Epstein must have used to blackmail the individuals that he's blackmailing. Hmm. This podcast is produced
2: better than the blackmail tapes of Epstein.
3: Believe it or not, we actually have better video encoders <laughs> than yeah. the Epstein operation. That's right,
2: yeah. Um, and then the other piece of evidence I had for that is Glenn Dubin. We talked about, uh, we did an episode on the Patreon side about Glenn and Eva Dubin. Uh, they've been accused of rape by uh, Virginia Roberts is mm-hmm. an Epstein accuser. She's accused them of rape. Uh, Glenn Dubin, according to Forbes, donated uh, $2,800 to uh, uh, Pete Buttigieg. Uh, he also supported Michael Bennett and Steve Bullock, uh, who both dropped out. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's just one of those things where it's like, why are these kind of weird uh let's say epstein adjacent billionaires funding this totally unknown south bend mayor and what do they expect in return um and you know again it's it's what where does he come from there's this wall street journal article that says he just kind of cold called a bunch of former obama donors and they were so won over by his charisma that they were just like hell yeah let's do it he's Um, a manchurian candidate
3: yeah he's a road scholar uh, enlisted to fight in Afghanistan, even though he came from a somewhat wealthy background. Mm-hmm. So you know he's insane.
1: Sure. Well, he likes to kill for fun. He Which...
3: likes to have that history so that he can run for office. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, his mom controls him with PSYOP sci- sci- uh, sci- t- technology
2: <laughs> to activate him. Right. Um, And then just the subjects of the episode today, Heather Reisman and Gary Schwartz, they hosted uh, one of his first major fundraisers, July 6th, 2019. They had a fundraiser at their Nantucket home uh, for Pete Buttigieg. uh, And it just so happens that Heather Reisman is a uh, member of the Bilderberg Group. Oh, that's a fun group. (laughs) So don't read into that at all. Um, (laughs) Unintended.
3: Pete Buttigieg himself was recently... um implicated or not implicated but connected to a bread price fixing scandal in Mm -hmm. canada there is a string of supermarkets that hired him when he was a McKinsey associate to sort of optimize their pricing strategy and uh, it led to this hilarious video
0: so the proposition that i've been on front lines of corporate price fixing is just to get that out of the way. You um, worked for a company that was fixing bread prices. <laughs> uh, no. I worked for a consulting company that had a client that may have been involved in fixing, or was apparently in a scandal. I was not aware of the Canadian uh, bread pricing scandal until last night.
1: Do we know <laughs> if, the, if the bread pricing thing is connected to uh, Schwartz at all? It could be, but that might be connected. But I not... didn't find anything yeah? specifically right. to him. Boy, I yeah. love this guy interviewing him. His face is yeah, so perfect. Yeah, when... laconically <laughs>
3: This says like you you made bread more expensive right. for working people, <laughs> but actually like so uh, a CTV News Canada mm-hmm. article suggested that I like as part of their McKinsey's results they got a consortium of supermarkets and bakers in Canada to over a number of years mm-hmm. increase their bread prices more than you would expect. It oh, really? used to do over a period of about fifteen years,
1: huh? Hmm. Yeah. So, so yeah. Like how much? Like bread cost. Like if bread costs a dollar, what? I mean, obviously, it doesn't cost dollar. Well, like- it
3: said that like it increased by a dollar fifty more over that period than you would expect given just regular sort of inflation, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound like much. But if you're a part of working class person who needs the staple food, yeah, to feed important. your family every single day, then right. that really adds up. Yeah, mm-hmm. and it's just all going straight to these companies, right?
2: Right. And so it's this Canadian chain uh, Loblaws, uh, which Pete Buttigieg worked with during his time at McKinsey. He has denied being involved in the bread price fixing scandal. But while McKinsey was consulting for them, they were fixing the prices of bread in Canada. Um, And and I guess just one last thing I did want to mention here. Um, When we talk about Pete Buttigieg as a Manchurian candidate, there was in uh, uh, April 2019, a New York Times article, uh, which was uh, talk about these what-to-do-about-Bernie meetings hmm. that the uh, Democratic Party was hand uh, holding, or at least unofficially, sure. uh, the longtime party financier Bernard Schwartz was uh, holding these dinners in New York and Washington, D.C., uh, and then just quoting from the New York Times, the gatherings have included scores from the moderate or center-left wing of the party, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senator Chuck Schumer, the minority leader, uh, former Governor Terry McAuliffe of Virginia, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, himself a presidential candidate and president of the Center for American Progress near a tandem. So Pete Buttigieg was an attendee at these What to Do About Bernie Sanders meetings. And, you know, I I think it's interesting that the Democratic Party as a whole didn't line up immediately behind Joe Biden, which I think was their best strategy. Mm -hmm. Uh, But clearly they wanted somebody with the, you know, supposed Obama charisma, and they... Thought that that person was Pete Buttigieg, so if anything, you know they split themselves by not immediately line up, lining up behind a non-Obama singular alternative, or sorry, non-Bernie uh, singular right. alternative. Yeah, I think
1: that uh, all of them got uh, back ropes from uh, Biden, and they were like, you know what, I can't, I can't deal with four more <laughs> years of clammy Biden just fucking touching my Hansi. shoulders.
2: Yeah, it's not that's not gonna work.
1: Yeah. why 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 why
2: why <laughs> <laughs> even jeffrey epstein was like this guy's a fucking creep <laughs> like he's gotta really lay off those massages you know i like look man three like, a day's enough
1: listen we got all the tape we need you can leave <laughs> i think that like the establishment wanted to be like uh, bernie's too old and so they couldn't be like biden works right and bernie is too old so that for that that's why they went with uh, the young rat-faced buddhich
2: and that's a good point, yeah. Um, and, but again, it's Thanks. just it, its just like, where the fuck does this guy come from? Where does right. people to judge come from? He's the mayor of a nobody town, and suddenly he's one of the most prolific Democratic fundraisers and, you know, uh, one of the top four candidates for president of the United States. Yeah. Uh, he's d-
3: outraising Biden in terms of campaign donations.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh, and okay. so, like, that money, that money is coming from these billionaires. Our apologies to any listeners in South Bend that Sean's calling a nobody town. <laughs> Hey, you South Bend listeners, go fuck off. Fucking mayor sucks. Yeah. I think he means n- numerically, you know? Yeah, no, I know what Sean meant, but I mean, any of our <laughs> South Bend listeners immediately went, fuck you, Sean. We can't piss off the powerful South Bend <laughs> contention of grubstakers. It is crazy how much money this motherfuckers was raised, though.
2: Yeah, well, we weren't planning to do a tour there anyways, because Pete would have had the police department <laughs> kill us. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, and also just uh, one last thing on the Buttigieg, uh angle. So he's been getting these major donations from billionaires and millionaires and stuff. Mm-hmm. So his campaign was trying to make their average donation look lower. <laughs> so they held a contest, which is uh, the lowest donation to Pete Judge contest, <laughs> uh, which was, you know, like trying to encourage people to give sure. a dollar or like yeah, two dollars or some if shit. If they were
3: planning to give a thousand dollars, you should just split it up into like 20s or something. Wow.
2: But it's just so funny because it's like, you know, they're getting, you know, 2,000 or whatever the maximum is from all these millionaires and billionaires. And then they'll just like try to to get people to give a dollar so they can be like yeah our average donation is like wow. just like bernie um can you
1: donate to us on layaway <laughs> what fucking crooks yeah i need to appear
2: more working class but so just to kind of start the story of jerry schwartz and heather reisman um and you know so he's a canadian billionaire worth according to forbes about 1.6 billion dollars mm-hmm. u.s Um, And we don't quite know where they met Pete Buttigieg, but it should be noted. So Jerry Schwartz manages Onyx Corporation. Onyx is a uh, private equity firm, uh, the largest private equity firm in Canada. They've got about 33 billion assets under management, according to EuroCanadian.ca. About 218,000 employees across the various companies they own. Um, They own companies like Beatrice Foods, Husky Oil, Cineplex, Alliance Atlantis, and Save-A-Lot thrift stores. Uh, Among others. But, you know, so we don't quite know where they got contact with Pete Buttigieg, but Onyx has had a lot of McKinsey corporate people work for it in the past. You know, Jerry Schwartz, of course, is a Canadian businessman, uh, is linked to, you know, the um, uh, founders and directors of uh, Loblaws, the uh, Canadian bread price fixing (laughs) store Pete Buttigieg was involved in. Um, but regardless, you know, they did a big fundraiser for him July 6, 2019. So they clearly are hoping this guy will represent their interests and make them money. Mm-hmm. So we should explain to people who these people are and how they made their money. And, you know, it took a while to find this stuff, but I think it's a very fascinating story. Um,
1: just A lot d- of the links we looked at when we were trying to find research on this episode just kept saying, Sorry, no information here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, you know, there there is... Um, It's interesting where, again, we've talked about this with previous Canadian billionaires. Uh, Americans maybe have the idea that this is a more benign or enlightened country. But one of the only, like let's say, hostile journalist sources, at least adversarial, not just ass kissy, Mm -hmm. is a profile written for Toronto Life, which you cannot find online anywhere anymore. I had to get quotes from it from a forum post discussing Mm -hmm. this piece that was taken down. Uh, that apparently the author of it admitted in the piece that uh, Jerry Schwartz and Heather Reisman sent her a notice saying, uh, "If you're going to write this, you need to save all of your notes." In case legal action is wow. uh, is uh, eminent, and another source told her that if he was quoted in it, uh, she would. Uh, he would drop her in acid or something like that. <laughs> so it's like just this really kind of fucked up thing that does beg the question like, okay, so what are these people hiding? Why are they so secretive? They're all over the place in Canadian media, but just none of the sourcing is at all adversarial or hostile. There's no question of their position. What did they do? Do they deserve their position?
1: No, they're just Canadian folk who enjoy poutine and l- smoking legal marijuana and, and watching hockey from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, enjoying Celine Dion and Justin Bieber and the <laughs> the finest maple syrup that this country can can produce.
2: Those things every Canadian does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so Jerry Schwartz, and we'll kind of we'll focus on Jerry Schwartz at least for the beginning of this because Jerry Schwartz, you know, made a, a fortune in private equity. Heather uh, Reisman, uh, Reisman, um has you know some rich family, but it was more just she kind of spent his private equity money. Buying into bookstores and various other things. Yeah, she
1: mentions in interviews that they married when she was 26 and she married her mentor essentially. I mean, very easy to uh, make your husband your mentor when he's literally uh, flush with cash to fund your ideas of business expansion and things that you want to do to get her off your back.
2: Yeah, and uh, just according to the uh, Mm CanadianEncyclopedia.ca, this is like a short little biography of Jerry Schwartz. He was born in uh, uh, Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, Manitoba um, in 1941. His father was Andrew Schwartz. His mother was Lillian Schwartz. Uh, His mother was a lawyer. His father was trained as a pharmacist but uh, worked in the family-run car parts dealership. Hmm. Jerry Schwartz started to work in the store when he was 10 years old. At age 17, he and a friend started a clothing store called the Stag Shop. Hmm. Uh, He worked there Friday nights and weekends. Um, And it's just kind of an interesting thing where... uh, Generally, 17-year-olds who get to start their own clothing stores did not grow up in poverty, <laughs> Like at least statistically sure. uh, from my experience, that is the case. But what I found amusing is from this other profile in globalnews.ca. They quote from an online video where Jerry Schwartz accepted the 2016 Horatio Alger Award. <laughs> uh, for those not familiar, Horatio Alger was an American author in the 19th century who wrote rags to riches stories. Oh. And it actually might be something worth discussing more in future on a future episode because a lot of American culture... Is informed by this Horatio Alger idea. Right. This idea that if you just work hard and are a decent person or dedicated, you will become rich. Because mm-hmm. he wrote all these pulp novels about poor kids who just like worked hard and then became rich overnight, yeah. you know. It's um, called the
3: Horatio Alger myth. Mm-hmm.
2: And it's just kind of amusing that Jerry Schwartz is there accepting the Horatio Alger yeah, award right. after his fucking dad bought him a clothing store at <laughs> 17 years old. Um, but in this video, uh, according to the write-up at globalnews.ca, uh, Jerry Schwartz explained how his mother was deaf, which resulted in her being very distant, Aww. but he was extremely close with his father, a local businessman, and auto parts dealer. My dad was a fantastic guy who I looked up to, admired, and loved, Schwartz said in the video, adding his dad, quote, came from a much more humble beginnings. He worked his way up.
3: His his mom was
2: a deaf lawyer. Oh, wow. Mm.
3: That's... I don't know. She, she's closer to the Horatio Alger myth. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, well, I don't know her background.
2: Just like a fucking 99% win rate because nobody in Canada wants to be impolite <laughs> to her. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we'll put that guy in prison, eh? <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't want that lady to be sad. <laughs> 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 I know they talk just like us, right, but you sure. gotta...
1: Your card
2: is guilty.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure. I mean, if this if is this what you say, it's worth right but me. That's that's the defendant
2: lawyer. Just nobody in Canada right. is allowed to dispute anything a deaf person says. It's like checkmate. Cross-examining the witness, right? right. <laughs> Just like the fucking uh, homicide perp feels so bad for the deaf lawyer. It's like, yeah, all right, I did it. I guess, <laughs> yeah, I was there. I made up the alibi. <laughs>
1: Most complaints about this show are when we laugh at terrible things, and I'm pretty sure this is going to get us a whole bunch of people being like, "Uh, you know, I wanted to learn more about Reisman and Schwartz, but when they were laughing at that deaf
2: mother of his, I got mad. Yeah, but in fairness, we are like at least five years away from the technology where deaf people will be able to listen to this (laughs) podcast, so we've got a little bit of a buffer. Um, But so starting when he was 10 years old, uh, Jerry Schwartz worked at his father's auto parts store. So he's working at his dad's auto parts store at 17. His dad buys him like, you know, this fucking clothing store. That's kind of what he's doing when he's a kid. Um, Just continuing from the Canadian Encyclopedia write-up. He took an undergraduate degree in commerce Mm -hmm. at the University of Manitoba. Uh, During the time, he and a friend invested in a carpet store. So uh, he got more money from his dad to invest in a carpet store uh, with outlets in Calgary and Edmonton. (laughs) Um, and then he did a uh, law school at the University of Manitoba. Uh, in his first year at law school, he started a business that sold government-issued coin, mm. uh, coin sets, Yeah, you know, the kind of the... commemorative. Yeah, 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 that kind of bullshit. Uh, After completing his law degree, he worked as a lawyer for two years with Winnipeg tax lawyer Izzy Asper, uh, Hmm. which will become relevant later. They would go on to co-found the company uh, CanWest together. We'll we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, He obtained an MBA from Harvard University after he uh, worked with this tax lawyer, Izzy Asper, for two years. Hmm. Um, He got, uh, again, just uh, from the... uh, Canadian Encyclopedia. He got his start in finance at the New York City brokerage firm, uh, Esterbrook & Company, soon after he joined the Wall Street investment bank Bear Stearns & Company. There he worked alongside investment bankers Jerome Kohlberg, Henry Kravis, and George Roberts, who later formed the re- investment company KKR. We've talked about KKR a bit. They're like one of the first major private equity firms right. uh, in the U.S. in the 80s. Uh, we'll do a future episode on them more in depth. But uh, what's relevant about that is uh, from the encyclopedia, the trio pioneered the, quote, leveraged buyout, i.e., buying companies with borrowed money and using their assets as security for loans. Um, so he kind of works with these original buyout guys, and then he takes the buyout formula, the private equity Uh, acid uh, flip it and strip it or strip it and flip Mm -hmm. it it, however it goes uh, back to Canada but I did just want to mention one other uh, connection Uh, he starts working at Bear Stearns in uh, I think 73 or 74 he leaves it in 77 Uh, Jeffrey Epstein starts working at Bear Stearns in 1976 Uh, leaves it in '80s. So for about a year, they were both working at Bear Stearns. Right. No idea if they ever met each other. No way of knowing. But worth pointing out <laughs> uh, that they were both working at that cursed company. But so he leaves, you know, Bear Stearns in 1977. He goes back to Canada. He meets with that a uh, uh, lawyer, Izzy Asper? That um that we that he was working with for mm-hmm. briefly, and they found this company called Canwest. Canwest Communications. And apparently they kind of do this uh, leverage buyout stuff, at least according to the Canadian Encyclopedia. Can West bought several small companies over the years, um, but eventually the, the business relationship broke down. But uh, Steve has a little bit more research on Can West. It's an important Canadian media company.
3: So Izzy Asper, uh, his Schwartz's business partner in CanWest, West, right. uh, jumping backwards a bit in time, So he, in 1973, he was, he was elected, sorry, in 1972, he was elected leader of the, of the Liberal Party for Manitoba, Mm -hmm. and he actually, he was part of kind of a right-wing strand within the Liberal Party that advocated uh, a more laissez-faire approach to the economy. Interesting. And specifically, they advocated for the elimination of the Canadian welfare state. So he's like a a right-wing libertarian sort of guy. So he wanted to do away with the the welfare state, including Canada's famed single-payer health insurance program. Um, Thankfully, though, in 1973, in the uh, Manitoba elections, they got crushed (laughs) by the New Democratic Party, like a socialist coalition government. Nice. Came into power. And, uh, like... They showed up and went, face! Yeah. So... It was kind of because of that political drubbing, right? In that election that he said like fuck this, I'm just going to go into business now. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm a free agent, he said. Right, right. In the in a news article gotcha. after that. <laughs> so, anyway, in, ni- in in a year later in 1974, he starts uh w- what would later become Canwest. Mm-hmm. Like he started Canada Can West uh Corporate Capital Corporation uh which would later become Canwest with Schwartz. Between 1974 and 1979, Schwartz and Israel Asper, leading Ken West, they used a very aggressive approach of um, uh, using debt to buy up uh, controlling interests along with a consortium of other groups. They bought a controlling interest in the CIIIDT network, Hmm. which is a network of broadcasting transmitters in Ontario. Oh, really? Ontario, Canada. Right. And that was kind of their first big venture as a com- as a company in terms of acquisitions. Gotcha. And they they were initially part of this consortium and didn't have control, but later on they bought their way into a controlling share of that in 1985. This was after Schwartz left. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. But right. um, just to give some extra context on Asper, though, um, yeah, so he had this sort of fledgling political career that went nowhere. And then with Schwartz's help and his knowledge of the LBO environment, mm-hmm. the leverage buyout opportunities in Canada, they were able to sort of grow Can West. And they eventually, Schwartz had kind of a falling out with him. Mm-hmm. I think, I couldn't find it exactly, but I'm kind of thinking it was due to their politics.
2: Well, Schwartz seems like a pretty similarly politically aligned guy where we'll, we'll go through. So, yeah, as Steve mentioned there, Shor, uh, Jerry Schwartz helps him uh, co-found Canwest in 1977. Jerry Schwartz leaves Canwest in 1984. Mm-hmm. According to the Cana- uh, globalnews.ca, uh, Schwartz took a portion of, his in, of the industrial assets mm-hmm. from Canwest to start Onyx, which is his um, private equity firm that still exists today. Um, but it is interesting where Schwartz, through his private equity firm, has consistently lobbied for privatization in the Canadian healthcare system. And in fact, also he holds a lot of U.S. healthcare and uh, hospitals and other such things. He's lobbied for further privatization in Medicare in the United States, mm-hmm. and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit. So at least on you know Israel defending Israel from criticism and um, privatizing the healthcare system, at least that part of their politics are aligned.
1: Even if uh, it's not because of their political differences, every billionaire, when they have a mentor that they surpass in one way or another, at some point says, "I can do this better than you can." So even if it was or wasn't the political differences, I think Schwartz at some point just went, "Fuck this shit! I can do this on my own."
3: Hmm. Yeah. Like I just uh, I couldn't really find any sources for why they actually split up. Right. Mm -hmm. So I was thinking either it was from their politics or it was uh, Israel Asper's like, extremely aggressive approach that ultimately led them to split.
1: Mm -hmm. Maybe they disagreed on eating butt. You know, you never know. Maybe Schwartz was like, I'm into uh, it. didn't get that butt wet (laughs) enough. Asper was like, nah, dog, you can't go. You can't go down the brown town. He's like, fuck that shit.
2: (laughs) So I heard you were eating
1: butt. (laughs) I I don't think I
3: like you anymore. (laughs) Israel Asper was also like a self-described Zionist. Mm -hmm. And like he admired like people like Vladimir Jabotinsky. And uh, he like sometimes wrote in favor of the Likud party in Israel. Mm -hmm. So that was like another sort of touchstone between Schwartz and Asper. Mm.
2: Uh, Likud is the ultra right-wing party that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu belongs to? Yeah. Okay. And uh, Yeah, and so it is something where it's kind of depressing that he makes a very smart calculation where he tries to run for public office, gets destroyed, and realizes, yeah, so my agenda is extremely unpopular, and I can't actually implement it by winning an election, but I could just buy up a media conglomerate and then uh, allow no alternative viewpoints (laughs) to ever be aired, (laughs) and I would actually influence politics much more, and you can look pretty clearly at the right- word trend in canadian politics where you know they have a a quote-unquote liberal government but they have no problem selling guns to saudi arabia they have no problem uh protecting israel's interests at the united nations they are moving towards a lot of various privatization schemes a lot of you know corruption so it is just something where over time their influence of you know guys like jerry schwartz and um his business partner uh izzy asper Their influence was that much more for going into the private industry and then using their money and their, you know, media or whatever other empires to lobby the government, to pressure the government, to just slowly turn the levers of power in a more rightward direction, rather than attempting to appeal directly to the people where they would just get completely rejected. Right. Um, But, yes, so... uh, Oh, and I guess we should just mention with Can West, they've had uh, policies that exclude criticism of Israel from their editorial lines. It is one of the largest uh, media companies in Canada. And I think in like 2001, there was even an official policy directive that forbade criticism of Israel uh, for human rights violations.
3: Yeah. Just one more example of Can West and sort of the problem it presents for free speech in Canada. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, sort of a, a problem of centralization, of being a limit on the diversity of opinions. Um, there's a kind of a sad chapter where in the Montreal Gazette, it was reported on by a number of editors in interviews at that paper that they had to limit their criticism of Israel based on uh, controls from the headquarters of Can West. Really? Who owned them.
1: Were they making criticisms, and the higher ups were then like, "Hey, you got to cut the shit out."
3: Yep, exactly. Wow. And so there's actually one really egregious example where they had a uh, a professor from Waterloo, mm-hmm. um, one of the Montreal Gazette editors spoke to spoke to an interviewer. He said, "quote We even had an incident where a fellow, a professor at University of Waterloo, wrote an op-ed piece for us in which he was criticizing the anti-terrorism laws." in Israel. Right. Little and did he know that
2: would be his Waterloo. <laughs> <laughs>
3: and criticizing elements of civil rights abuses, etc., in Israel. Now that professor happens to be a Muslim and happens to have an Arab name. Hmm. We got a call from the headquarters demanding to know why we had printed this. Hmm. So this is just one example he's saying of right, like hundreds right. of instances where um, in order to, in order to publish anything sort of, uh, going against Israel like this, they would have to first send it over to the headquarters sure, to get yeah. the approval.
1: Mm-hmm. So the one time an Islamic person did it, they were like, you know what, how about you yeah. stop doing this? <laughs> wow. Right. So,
3: yeah, I mean, centralization of these opinions under con- under democratic control of Ken West right. was like ultimately presented a barrier to democracy. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and we'll talk more about uh, Jerry Schwartz specifically in his uh, pro-Israel, pro-apartheid lobbying, but it is just something worth noting that, you know, this media company he helped found and certainly put some money into, Mm -hmm. and uh, who remains friends with the owner, um, has lobbied for and uh, censored uh, viewpoints that he's opposed to. Yeah. Um, And that's a very undemocratic thing that's happening all over the Western world. Um, But just to kind of continue with the Jerry Schwartz story, so in 1984, uh, for whatever reason, uh, him and the uh, uh, other co-founder, Izzy Asper of uh, Can West, they split up. Um, Jerry Schwartz apparently takes a portion of the industrial assets to start his Onyx um, corporation, the private equity fund. Uh, according to Forbes magazine, a profile in 2000, in 1984, uh, Jerry Schwartz launched Onyx with $2 million of his own money Damn. and $50 million from outsiders, including Toronto Dominion Bank. Hmm. So, again, it's hard to kind of trace where he got his money, but it seems most likely <laughs> his dad was pretty rich. Sure. I uh. think
3: there might have also been like a Pete Buttigieg phenomenon, because mm-hmm. like he's just, he's somewhat unknown still, but he has this pedigree, right, from his dad and um going to a good university, mm-hmm. and he started a couple of businesses. Now he went to Harvard with an MBA, so mm-hmm. like. People are willing to take a chance on him,
1: and money begets money. So if you know someone with money, they know someone else with money, most likely. Yeah, so, so like,
3: there's if nothing else, you have access, right, to this elite circle.
1: Yeah, and I think access to the elite circle is what billionaires need to exist because without that, it don't fucking work. Well, it certainly has a price,
3: so yeah. it commands a price on the market. In right. addition to like the returns that they're going to promise people through their private equity firm, mm-hmm. you have access to all of these elite Canadian
1: politicians, these political circles. Right. And I mean, it's like frats and that entire like Greek system is just this. It's just a common built idea of we got money and we all have the same value system. So it's all fucking piling together to make each other's wealth grow.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, so it's interesting, his strategy for this uh, leverage buyout firm, Onyx, during the early years, um, at least uh, according to the Forbes profile, he's less focused on quick uh, flipping as he is on, like, buying in and consolidated in, in consolidating industries. Mm-hmm. They give the example of his investment in Sky Chefs, uh, which is an in-flight catering business mm-hmm. of American Airlines. He buys their in-flight catering business mm-hmm. in 1986, uh, and then he helped that outfit buy six other in-flight caterers, Um, And then, you know, so he gets this kind of network of in-flight caterers, and then he sells a 25% stake to uh, the German airline uh, Lufthansa in 1993. So it is like he does that kind of stuff a bit, and then he also does the usual stripping and flipping, which we'll talk about more later, but that's just an example of his early strategy. But what I also wanted to highlight, in 1987, uh, a year after this first, uh, or this uh, Sky Chefs deal... He takes Onyx Public mm-hmm. uh, from the Forbes profile. This is one of the first private equity firms to become a public company. Most of them do this now. But uh, according to Forbes, he raises $246 million in 1987. Uh, investors complained that Schwartz had given them a raw deal. He had kept 60% control through multiple voting shares and was skimming off 20% of the profits as a <laughs> fee, similar to a private buyout's firm fee. Uh, he eventually dropped the fee, but other problems loomed. Um, but that is just something where... Though it is a public company, Onyx is, he controls, uh, I believe they're called secondary shares that actually control voting on the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so, different
3: tiers of shares, Sure. Yeah. as there are in many large corporations right. now. Mm-hmm. But he was kind of innovating the use of them to maintain control without it costing
2: him personally too much money. Right. Right. So, uh, you know, however the structure is set up, there is public money or public investor money flowing into Onyx, but the public shareholders have no input into how the company is run. He's set up a structure where he controls all of the actual shares that can vote and impact the direction of the company at all. Um, But it is interesting where in 1987... Onyx buys the Canadian operations of Beatrice Foods. Mm-hmm. And uh we, we might have mentioned this deal before. This was in nineteen eighty seven the largest leverage buyout up to that point. It was a eight point seven billion dollar buyout of uh, Beatrice companies. And it was uh, orchestrated by KKR, the private equity firm we we mentioned earlier, but I just want to spend, you know, one minute uh, recapping it real quick because It's an important moment in American finance because we've talked a lot about Michael Milken and Drexel and uh, the junk bonds, the savings and loans crisis. The Beatrice deal was entirely financed, or almost entirely financed, with Michael Milken junk bonds. Uh, Drexel Burnham Lampart was uh, Michael Milken's company. They had this captive network of savings and loans and insurance companies uh, where it was a Ponzi scheme. It was just like, hey, uh, we own you, so if we raise these bonds you have to buy them and then you just get more and more people in the network to buy it and then eventually the music stops it's like any other ponzi scheme Mm -hmm. so they raise 8.7 billion dollars to buy out beatrice corporation of just ponzi scheme money and then kkr is the lead on this deal and they just strip it they take advantage of the tax code in the u.s at that time where if you make a profit splitting up a company and selling off component divisions you actually did not Uh, have to pay any tax on that it's Mm. since been fixed but at the time the way they did this big deal was they just sold off all the little pieces of Beatrice each time coming with layoffs and then they made a fucking fat profit and the actual money to buy the thing was all junk bonds that would later go bankrupt or that would later default and have to be bailed out by public money so it was this giant scam that he was able to profit off of because uh, Jerry Schwartz buys the Canadian operations of Beatrice Foods and one other thing is the Beatrice deal, like many other Michael Milken deals, insider trading was endemic. Sure. So everyone who knew what was going on was insider trading on it, and he has this relationship with KKR. And it's never been proven, but you have to imagine he probably got a heads up from them because he worked with them at Bear Stearns when they were there. And they probably said, hey, we're doing this deal, and you know maybe he made some money on advance, uh, knowing what was coming, or maybe he got a, a little bit of an advantage in this buyout. But it is just something where like you were saying about the frats earlier, this is how finance works in this country. It's just, you know a guy Mm -hmm. who has access to this fucking pile of fake money that's going to have to be bailed out by the government, and so you get to get in on the Ponzi scheme, and you get to make a tidy profit, and that's exactly what he did Mm -hmm. with Beatrice Foods in 1987.
1: And it's incestuous. It's just, I know, I literally, like Sean saying, I know a person that knows a person that's going to make us some more money, and it seems as if all these people that play with money don't give a fuck as to how it affects society. Mm-hmm. And I will say, Schwartz buying all those catering companies for the planes. I mean, think about all the good airplane jokes that happened because of him, you know? All these all these good man, these fucking airplane food sucks jokes. Mm-hmm. How many comedians worked because Schwartz buying out those companies?
2: <laughs> it's like, look, I've seen the new Seinfeld special. We have to make these harder to open. <laughs> this man needs a muse.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, so there's too many jokes about airplane peanuts. We got to switch to pretzels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, look,
2: we got to put razors in the bathroom <laughs> so he can wonder if people are shaving in there. <laughs> there has to be a shaving that's, stall. That's, mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, is I undertake the LVO with the knowledge that this might lead to. Like, his a
1: comedian. He likes improving. Yeah. good <laughs> Years later. Good standard materials worth
2: all the sacrifices. Look, these Michael Milken junk bonds are fake <laughs> anyways. We might as well just get some good bits out of it. 8.7 billion. No, no, no. This, this is not real money. This is all going to be bailed out by all the right, government. Right. <laughs>
3: um, I don't know how much debt he was using. hmm to uh to get back to the actual deal. Hmm. I don't know how much day he was actually using, but in, around this time I looked it up and uh LBOs were typically using about seven times leverage to finance these buyouts. Right. Which means that if it didn't if it went more than about fifteen percent against them like if their if their return ended up getting like fifteen percent less than they thought it might, mm-hmm. there's a possibility that their entire principal that they put forward could be lost on the deal. Oh, really? So it's very risky, right? So if this is, if there's a bunch of LBO activity going on with large companies, they're on shaky footing. It's just um, it adds so much risk to the system,
2: hmm. basically. Right, all that debt, and. Yeah, and it's so like
3: there's like the legalistic control aspect where you're like, wait, I mean, these are people's livelihoods that they're just being torn apart. Right. Like based on their decisions in the business in like the business processes. And then there's also just a huge amount of debt that goes into it.
4: Hmm.
3: And like part of the potential upside. So if it, I mean, the reason why they do it is because it multiplies their potential profits. Right. Of course. But it also multiplies their potential losses. Yeah. High risk. Just to add some context world. to that particular mm-hmm. business strategy.
2: Right. And, you know, so this has been one of the major Canadian private equity firms. Canada and Toronto has what's called Bay Street, which is their equivalent of Wall Street. That's mm. where most f- Canadian financial companies are based. Um, so this has been, you know, one of the major Canadian finance companies, and we could spend all day going through all their different deals. But I want to just kind of go through a few different examples of – his business deals and where he's clearly hurt society and probably engaged in illegal practices, um, that, you know, that we know of and uh, that are kind of exemplaries of the larger trend in private equity. Though, I guess the first one would be not even illegal, just, very deeply immoral and unethical. Uh, there's this write-up in uh, the com called What's the Big Deal? In 2005, it talks about Onyx a bit. Um, just quoting from it, in January 2004, Onyx Partners LP, the company's $2.2 billion private equity fund, made four quick investments in mental health hospitals, ambulance services, diagnostic equipment, and group homes. The total, $571 million. Wow! So they're investing in U.S. healthcare, and around this time, they of course start lobbying for more private in Medicare and uh, and these sorts of things, and we've talked a lot about how you know private healthcare investments uh, kill people because yeah. you're just putting a dollar and cents uh, cost analysis onto human lives, and you're closing down non-profitable operations. You're firing staff. You're trying to do more with less. You know, like in a, a group home or a retirement home or whatever. If you're firing nurses, then people die because they don't get the attention they need. All these other horrible things, and. Um, Uh, Just from that same article, they talk about the push into... Uh, U.S. healthcare, Bobby LeBlanc, a New York-based partner of Onyx, who came over from uh, Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway, says Onyx has no plans to integrate its four assets, these healthcare companies in the U.S. they just bought. Onyx got into the sector because it is growing fast and there's a lot of outsourcing being done. Quote, it behooves us to be in that space, he says, but adds that this is a strictly U.S. play for now. He hasn't come across any attractive Canadian healthcare firms, but that he, he admits that he hasn't been looking either. So it's basically because Because Canada has, you know, a um, a universal care system uh, that is not the fucking hellhole we live in. They have, of course, been lobbying to try and privatize that system. But there's no money to be made killing people in Canada yet. Yeah. (laughs) But there is in the (laughs) United States. And another example uh, similar to this is what they did with Boeing from the same article. In um, around 2005, they announced they would buy Boeing's three commercial aircraft plants in Kansas and Oklahoma for $1.5 billion. Damn. And so this uh, resulted in a lawsuit for age discrimination. Um, the Seattle Times wrote this up. Basically, the way it worked is there were at these three plants about 9,000 employees. Um, And Boeing, as part of the sale, fired all of them, and then Onyx rehired them, but they uh, laid off or didn't rehire about 1,100 workers. The majority of them were older people. Um, And so there's an Associated Press write-up that goes through this because immediately Onyx and Boeing are sued for age discrimination for firing these older workers. Right. Um, And from the Associated Press uh, write-up, lawyers for the workers filed documents to back up their request for class action status for the suit. The documents included depositions and internal company memos that say that Onyx, or its subsidiary company, cut older workers using a, quote, selective rehire process in which all Boeing employees were laid off and forced to reapply for their jobs with the new company. Uh, One memo Onyx presented to its board of directors to support um, the purchase noted that the Boeing workforce was, quote, older and more expensive, unquote, than the workforce the <laughs> new company would have. Yeah. Employees ages 45 to 54 were considered the most expensive, company memo showed. Uh, uh,
3: due to their being more likely to collect a pension.
2: Exactly. Sure. Yeah just firing people before they can collect their pension and you know of course healthcare costs are higher for older workers right. it was just entirely let's get rid of the old people and then the company will be more profitable
1: would it also be the fact that since they may have been at the company longer they were literally being paid more than the new staff mm-hmm. being brought in
2: yeah that too as well yeah um and then uh, so the subsidiary company onyx set up to run these uh, was called spirit and then they quote uh, in an internal document from spirit quote we are moving from a demographically expensive population towards one that should be cheaper unquote wow <laughs> so then that's an internal document where they just come mm. out and say it, that they're engaging in illegal age discrimination by firing you know a thousand one hundred
3: experienced labor is, is isn't as cheap for some reason you know
1: a lot of people are against millennials not us at boeing dog we're pretty cool with them we want to hire more of them fire the boomers bring in the millennials
2: the, uh, the court documents also indicated that when Boeing was trying to sell the division, it marketed potential cost savings prospective buyers could expect by reducing the number of workers. So Boeing even said to them, hey, buy this shit. We'll, you know, lay off all the workers and then you cannot rehire the old ones. Right, right. And, you know, it's fucked up because they have—the lawyers have these internal documents that clearly show age discrimination, but the lawsuit is thrown out by a Kansas judge. Wow. Uh, the judge said they, quote, couldn't show a clear pattern of age discrimination. <laughs> Which, I mean, it just goes to show you with what's going on with the Trump administration and the judges, like, the law doesn't fucking matter. Right. This is just corporate power, and you get a fucking unelected legislator who's just going to ignore all these memos where they're like, yeah, let's get rid of the fucking boomers. (laughs) (laughs) The judge dismissed the lawsuit saying, okay, boomer.
3: (laughs) Capitalism doesn't work for the boomers either. Right, right.
2: But, you know, it's just like a fucked up thing that they did is they got rid of all the old people to keep their pension and their health care costs down, and that's illegal, and it doesn't fucking matter because they control, you know, the government, the court system, all of it.
1: You may not have this information, but how many people ended up getting uh, fired due to this
2: so it was one thousand one hundred. Wow. There was just about nine thousand workers and Boeing, you know, laid off all of them as part of this sale right. and then Onyx rehired and they selectively excluded about one thousand one hundred, mostly right. older workers from right. the rehiring. But yeah, I mean it is something where Boeing got a better price for this sale by saying, like, hey, we can help you guys out on this shit, we'll fire all the workers, and then you just don't rehire the old ones. So there's just like both ends of this are making money, but the workers are getting fucked. So in order in order for them to qualify for those pensions, they have to work, you
3: know, X years. Sure. Usually more than a decade with the company. Mm -hmm. So I mean (laughs) it's it is a lot, but they've also
1: earned it. Right, of course and i can't believe the judge was like no i don't see any crime going on here that's fucking horse mm-hmm. looks like we're still in kansas
2: toto <laughs> Um, But so what I wanted to move on to is uh, this article I I mentioned earlier is uh, was written in Toronto Life magazine in June 2005 by a reporter named Marcy McDonald. It's called The Heather and Gary Show. Mm -hmm. And this is the one where, you know, the source threatened to, quote, drop her in acid if he's linked in the story. (laughs) And I just wanted to quote this paragraph she writes about how Gary Schwartz and Heather Reisman uh, respond to this unauthorized profile. Because you know they have so much media attention that's authorized, but when uh, she, uh, the reporter, attempts to interview them, they decline. They don't want to talk about their personal life, but she goes ahead with the story anyways, and that's where um, uh, uh, she says, "Quote: Weeks after I began researching on them, uh, Heather Reisman phoned the editor of this magazine, accusing me of posing nasty questions." Quote, I think I'm a good person, she said Adding that she could call on 500 thought leaders, unquote Across the nation to <laughs> attest to that perception Three hours later A two-page missive was hand-delivered To Toronto Life magazine On the personal letterhead of uh, Gerald Schwartz In more than three decades as a journalist I have never received such a heavy-handed warning Let alone one from a couple Whose net worth is estimated at the time At $750 million You and the writer are hereby put on notice It said that all records, notes and sources and source documentation used in the course of preparing the proposed article must be maintained for litigation should this become necessary, unquote. Hmm. Um, And then uh, she also does speculate Schwartz's letter was meant to deep six the story. It also raised a question. What is it that he and Heather Reisman are so worried about revealing? And she goes through in the story, again, it's almost impossible to find it online. You can get the first page on an archive.com link, or archive.org link. You can get uh, some discussion of it on uh, various forums. But they talk about the liberal uh, prime minister of Canada, uh, Paul Martin, Mm -hmm. who's the prime minister from 2003 to 2006, and the... uh, the Reismans, or sorry, the, uh, Gary Schwartz and Heather Reisman had a very close relationship with him, just quoting from the piece. Not only had Onyx contributed $315,000 to Martin's $12 million war chest, but a former party official beat the corporate uh, bushes for him directly out of Schwartz's office. The only questions on most party minds was not whether Schwartz and Reisman would flex their newfound political clout, but how. And they talk about, you know, there was a an incident with... um. Uh, In uh, 2003, uh, where student protests uh, provoked authorities at Montreal's Concordia University to cancel a speech by Benjamin Netanyahu, the Israeli prime minister at the time, former prime minister. Um, and this kind of sparked outrage in the Canadian pro-Israel Jewish community. So what, uh, they did, Jerry Schwartz and Heather Reisman, was they set up a group, the Canadian Council for Israel and Jewish Advocacy, the Mm -hmm. CIJA, and then they, you know, funded the shit out of it, and it essentially engaged in a takeover of all the other Canadian Jewish-Israel lobbying bodies. And, you know, because it's so well-funded, um, They were able to, uh, in 2005, get um, Prime Minister Paul Martin's uh, liberal government in Canada to switch Ottawa's votes on two United Nations resolutions that had long been a thorn in Israel's side. Those votes were largely symbolic. They vetoed two obscure UN committees on Palestinian affairs. But in foreign policy circles, the turnabout qualified as a diplomatic bombshells. As a diplomatic bombshell. And, you know, they speculate about how this came straight from Paul Martin's office, most likely at the direction of Jerry Schwartz and Heather Reisman, to totally, you know, turn about Canada's Israel policy under his government and veto these U.N. resolutions. Now, was that
1: ignited by that protest? Or switch votes, sorry. Was that ignited by that protest uh, uh, against Netanyahu?
2: Yeah, so, I mean, it was basically the student protest against Netanyahu was what led these two to set up this organization, CIJA. Concordia
3: University has, like, a really active, uh, like, left liberal and socialist
2: um, student body. Right. And then from the piece, uh, she found a source that said uh, Prime Minister Martin's office was, quote, under intense pressure from Schwartz about this. Mm. And so it is just something where CIJA is their um, uh, Jewish Israel advocacy organization, and it is probably the most powerful Israel advocacy organization in Canada. And that was entirely a result of, you know, this protest made them kind of refocus their efforts and bring the entire pro-Israel community and their, you know, massive money and political influence to bear on this subject. Um, And they, yeah, they also talk, or she also talks about in this piece, um, the Middle East isn't Schwartz and Reisman's only interest. With most of Onyx's holdings based in the U.S., Schwartz has already fretted publicly about the state of Canadian-American relationships. Um, On Bay Street, analysts have been on the lookout for signs that Schwartz has wrestled more El- elbow room hmm. for privatization within Medicare. Recently, Onyx's highest-priced purchases have been companies that provide ambulance and staffing services to U.S. hospitals, and Schwartz hasn't hidden his enthusiasm for exporting their wares north of the border should Canadian rules change. We would welcome it, he told a reporter, and without a doubt, we could reduce costs, which we've shown we can do in the U.S. That possibility, as it turns out, already has support within the government's own ranks. Two years ago, uh, 2003, a federal report recommending the privatization of more hospital services in Canada was published by Literal's, liberal Senator Michael Kirby, who sits on Indigo's board. Indigo is Heather Reisman's bookstore. right? Uh, so that is just something where it kind of goes through their power. And also, apparently, with Paul Martin, the then-liberal prime minister, they went to his official residence in Ottawa and watched the November 2004 U.S. elections with him.
1: Yeah, in one article they said that they were at some other event and uh, that... Was it prime minister you just said?
2: Uh, prime Minister Paul Martin. Yeah, yeah he
1: was like, uh, I want, I want you guys to come. And they're like, All right, we're gonna get out of here. Yeah. And then immediately they just left their dinner party and jumped on a private jet to go watch the election. Yeah, the room Paul just Martin
2: watches was. as like
3: the keynote speaker. No, the main guest just
1: leave. Right, right. <laughs> hey guys, come to my house at six for a party. Uh, sorry, uh, I got a call from Obama at seven. Uh, I'm gonna Actually, get out. Y'all hang out here though. This is a great opportunity for me. <laughs> so I'm gonna leave. Right.
2: They're always fucking name-dropping the Prime Minister. I'm sick of it. (laughs) Um, But yeah, and uh, then just like one last piece from that article talking about Heather. Apparently, uh, Heather Reisman's loft-style office on King Street, a framed memo from Ayn Rand offers a telltale clue to Heather's ultimate book pick, The Fountainhead, a title that she says changed her life. And it talks about this uh, story. Story in the Fountainhead, uh, of course, the Ayn Rand, you know, um, pro-libertarian, pro-capitalist, pro-businessman novel, where one of the characters uh, blows up one of his own buildings rather than let nitpicking pragmatists tamper with the purity of his design. And so there's a story where she, uh, uh, in 2000, or sorry, in In 2000, yeah. Indigo, her bookshop, was about to move into a new outlet in a town center. She drove out, took one look at the location she'd already approved, and declared that she'd changed her mind. She said, this store is in the wrong place in the mall. I'm not opening it. What? Refusing to take possession of the space meant a penalty of several hundred thousand dollars. (laughs) But she was undeterred. And then apparently the landlord uh, cashed her check and then immediately rented it to a competing bookstore. Oh, great. Which was Chapters at the time. Wow. That story doesn't end
1: well.
4: Uh,
2: yeah, but it is just funny where it's like she thinks she's this fucking Ayn Rand character who can just waste hundreds of thousands of right. dollars of her right. husband's money to uh, not open a store because she didn't like the vibe of it when she gets <laughs> out there.
1: Yeah, and in an in interview with Reisman, she mentions that like the night before she opened the first bookstore, she was up at 4 a.m., and she 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 called her husband and said, You have to come down here now. I don't, I don't know if this is going to work. And so Gary gets out of bed and goes to the bookstore and looks around and is like, uh, it's going to be fine. Don't even dream it's going to be bad. And it, it's clear that uh, uh, Reisman has a hold on Schwartz that makes him be like, I, I got to take care of my wife's fucking bookstore right now.
2: Mm. Yeah, and so, you know, uh, Reisman, um, uh, Heather Reisman buys the competing bookstore chapters for $121 million, uh, thanks to her fa- uh, her husband's money.
3: It was actually a hostile takeover. Yeah. yeah. Uh, a rare example a uh, private private company gang hostilely taken over they took a
1: 50.1% stake yeah i mean cuz originally like uh, for a book for a publisher anyway that's right. a rare story and the like government was against it they said that if you were to buy this it would become a monopoly and they claimed they like well we're we're losing money with uh, our, our our bookstore indigo so us buying chapters <laughs> is no big deal yeah, they're like in order i mean
3: Look how, bunch, look how bad of condition I'm in, except <laughs> right, for my right. husband's private equity yeah. money.
1: In order to survive, you need to let me buy this larger competitor. <laughs> yeah, and Indigo at the time had like 16 superstores, and they bought Chapters, which had 70 superstores and over 200 smaller locations. So it wasn't like uh, Indigo and Chapters were on equal footing. It was like... Uh, It was Indigo was had 16 less than 20 locations. And they're like, let's just buy the only other bigger, bigger fish in the sea because we got more money than them.
3: So this was like between 2000 and 2001. Mm -hmm. They well, they had to go uh, fight it out in court for a bit on whether or not it complies with the competition rules. Right. But eventually the bid went through. Yeah. Yeah, They got it. So they merged. Well, it was sort of like they called a merger. But the brand of chapters was eventually,
1: over a couple of years, subsumed into right
3: mm. um, her company. And in a lot Indigo. of, the,
1: in a lot of the posts, uh, people talking about that merger, there's employees in the comments that mentioned that when Reisman took over, the company just went to shit, basically. <laughs> because it it caused (laughs) massive turnover happen (laughs) they instituted things like uh, loyalty cards to allow the customers to like get a slight discount but then also give their personal information you know how fucking bookstores started doing this around this time where you'd be like I'm trying to buy one book and they're like do you want to buy you want to give me all your information to get 15% off and you're like no like "All right, you want a tote bag so that you can fucking carry your book home it's like no it's like well if you got the card and the tote the tote's cheaper than the card it's like fuck I'm trying to buy a book
2: you fix book prices. <laughs> <laughs> they
3: interview Heather. Right.
2: Yeah, no, so, like, there's these forum posts from employees that are like, yeah, they started tracking book sales per associate, yeah. which is like, it's a fucking bookstore. You're not right. doing upselling. And the books, books, the cashiers aren't making,
1: like, a, a commission on these books. And so one of the comments was like, we had to have a 70% selling of the plum, like, group card for the, the Indigo bookstores. Um,
2: Horseshit is what it was. Would you like to purchase insurance on this book? <laughs> Just one dollar. That was when I worked at Hollywood Video before they went under the uh, video rental store. They were trying to get us to get people to spend a quarter insuring the videos that they rented Little from us. And crazy. they would count up our uh, say uh, the commissions we managed to generate on this. This is a,
1: a piece from
2: uh, CBC News. It's uh, in
1: 2000. Lickman's book was facing bankruptcy. It was a 91-year-old Toronto-based bookstore. And the owner said, like, the stores drifted away from competitive positions, and other people offered a better assortment, a better shopping experience. Many larger-scale bookstores have cafes and stores, which encourage people to stay and browse. And so they asked Indigo CEO Heather Reisman about this said that there's a lot of competition in the book business, and Lixman did not necessarily do anything wrong. And here, listen to how this sentence goes next year. Our industry, in particular, is under extraordinary pressures from all sides, from technology, from competitors, from new approaches to distribution. It is an extraordinary difficult time, and as a result, sometimes there are casualties. <laughs> in war. Yeah, that doesn't sound like a person that is... Uh, interested in letting people have a nice book shopping experiences. That sounds like someone that's willing to kill you to take what you got. Right. Like-, like how they
3: like that long sentence about there being so many pressures that can just be condensed into Amazon exists. Yeah. Well this
1: is from 2000 so even at that time Amazon did exist but it isn't like what the market is right now. This is 20 That's years true. ago. That's so, when they're mostly to only a book right. a book company. At the time uh, Amazon.ca did not exist so there is an extra about four to five year period where Indigo books could exist in a world where Amazon was not a major player in the Canadian market. So Stevens, right that Amazon would eventually come in and be the competition that they're talking about but also indigo has a fucking private equity that's fucking the ceo basically so they've got droves of money and he's, they c- he's a director right yeah he's a director in
3: indigo in, in,
2: in indigo yeah
1: in addition to
3: being the money man who helped uh do the buyout of chapters
2: well just one thing i wanted to say about that is you know it's noted that heather reisman uh, of course you know Uh, merged indigo and chapters and under her steady hand they've been absolutely shelled to pieces by amazon.ca but it's worth noting that between this bookstore and jerry schwartz's control of a cineplex and galaxy theaters which is the second largest movie chain in canada they have a major amount of control over cultural life in canada where if you control this major bookstore you can uh, make or break an author or publisher's career Mm -hmm. you can say like yeah this this book is going to be all over our shelves, and this one is not, you know, and you can do the same with movies and, and this kind of stuff, so they exert power in, in a ton of different ways, right? Um, and uh, yeah, I guess we could talk a little bit about Heather Reisman.
1: Yeah, so from uh, the Canadian Encyclopedia, she was born in Montreal, Quebec, to a middle-class Jewish family. Her dad, Mark, was a real estate broker, and her mom, Rose, owned a high-end clothing store where Reisman had her first job folding clothes. Uh, she's the niece of Simon Sol Reisman, and Simon Sol Reisman it, was the country's chief negotiator for the Canada-United States Free Trade Agreement. Hmm. So her family had many connections and were uh, a middle-class family that had all the upward momentum to have Heather Reisman, all the success that she would need. Uh, she completed her bachelor's of social work at Miguel University. You know, my friend with McGill University, he said, those people are racist as fuck. Wait, Uh, where? McGill? McGill, yeah. Oh, in like Quebec? Yeah, in Quebec, yeah.
2: Your friend was like, I've never heard the N word followed by (laughs) A before.
1: (laughs) No, my friend went there for a Middle Eastern Studies uh, master's degree, and he was like, oh man, all of them are rich kids that are focused on learning the uh, Middle East languages to benefit the CIA and the Canadian government <laughs> mm. and not at all about learning a language to understand our culture and to try and integrate mm-hmm. their culture into ours, basically.
2: Well, no wonder they like Pete Buttigieg so much. <laughs> <laughs> learning
1: languages just to further your career, yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. So uh, she worked as a caseworker with troubled ke- teens. She was a social worker. She married and had two kids. But the but, and th- this comes up with sometimes. times the marriage was unhappy. And there's no other talk about who this person was or even her children. She's got two kids with Jerry Schwartz as well. There's no information about her kids, all four of them. Um, he was always reading Mein Kampf in bed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, she, uh, in 2000, uh, to, to go on Sean's point here, excluded Indigo from selling Mein Kampf at her stores because that's the worst thing about Indigo <laughs> is their access to Mein Kampf.
2: <laughs> Yeah, did, did you know that when the author of Mein Kampf found that out, he shot himself, <laughs> <laughs> that his book was banned from indigo stores? Right, was right. <laughs> Very tragic. Um, it was like a Confederacy of Dunces situation <laughs> where <laughs> his his <laughs> grieving mother went around selling the book and it became popular after his suicide. Mm-hmm.
1: So she she got her a divorce from her first husband. She joined her brother Howard's Computer Company as an executive before co-founding strategic change consultancy, Paradigm Consulting in 1979 in 82 Reisman married investor Gary Schwartz and the way they met was that she was working for a soda company called Cots, and she like got like disgracefully fired and then met Gary Schwartz through that mm. entity and then once she married Gary Schwartz she, he became like her her North Star if you know what I mean so uh yeah reisman schwartz
2: is like this dumbass who got fired from a soda company can definitely run some (laughs) bookstores well
1: this is exactly what happened so she she gets uh she leaves con and then heather reisman is contacted by borders uh which was a popular american bookstore to act as a local partner for their expansion into canada but that venture failed because they couldn't receive the required federal regulatory approval in canada And after this, Reisman went, you know what? Maybe I can do this whole bookstore thing that was completely set up by Borders a moment ago. So she sets up her own bookstores with the idea that, like, it's a place where people can sit and have fun. And uh, she uh, hires Bruce Mao to design the original uh, stores. And I I want you to know this. There's, like, eight to ten different interviews with Bruce Mao talking about design. If you look at their most recent Indigo rebrand, it's literally just zoom in on the text and kind of make it look kind of shady. Like, this is not great design that Bruce Mao has done here, and he's also a portly man who doesn't know how to wear clothes properly. (laughs) Um, So, she marries uh, Gary Schwartz. She starts Indigo in um, uh, 97, her first year being in Burlington, Ontario, and then literally starts buying up and fucking over at the local bookstores mm. until they have about 16 superstores. Fucking over the local bookstore market, and then they they purchase, or they merge with uh, Chapters, and from then on, they do a deal with this company called Kobo, and Kobo is an e-book company that uh, Michael Serbans was the brainchild of, and he, in like... Ninety nine was like hey fucking you need to get in on this and then by 2009 they launched their own thing and when she was asked like hey Reisman uh don't you think like you know getting into e-books might be bad for your brick and mortar store she says if my business was going to be cannibalized I was gonna do the cannibalizing (laughs) which that's fucking psychotic that doesn't make any fucking sense um and then so Kobo runs into the if issue. My
2: business was going to have its throat cut and left in a field <laughs> to die somewhere with nobody eating the body at all. And it just kind of decomposing. I was going to be the one who does that. Right.
1: Precisely. Uh, this is from uh, goodereader.com and about uh, Kobo Industries, basically. So Kobo then goes into the e-reader market. They do, develop their own product, and instead of focusing on the American market like uh, Amazon and Google and uh, a few other companies would, they decided to focus on an international market. Uh, France is very hesitant to work with a foreign distributor in terms of books, but they, they eventually get that contract. But then they get to a point where they're fucked. They've put too much money into their business, and they kind of don't know if they're going to be able to pull it out at the end. And then all of a sudden, this company from America called Walmart buys them for $350 million. Hmm. They uh, initially put $35 million into Kobo. And now you might be thinking to yourself, wow, what a godsend that this rich family got saved by another rich family. I don't know. Maybe Jerry Schwartz. A guy that's connected to several blue chip companies had something to do with his wife's ebook book company uh, being bought up by, uh, right at the last moment. Mm.
2: But yeah, I mean, this is just an example of how terrible at business she is. Like she had some sort of plant company, Crookshanks, which right. she ran into the ground yeah. beforehand. And... and
1: listen, you want to hear how smart this person is. This person was asked how to be good at business, how to be a good leader. And then she was asked what superpower she wants. And this is what she said.
0: If I had a superpower... I'd like to be the conductor of an orchestra.
2: (laughs) (laughs) The most boring issue of Spider-Man. It's It's not not even a
1: superpower. Bitch, you read a book every fucking day, you don't know what a superpower is? So, Heather Reisman is a person that... Uh, is not necessarily terrible but certainly is not good and uh, we haven't even mentioned Fort Schwartz where they chose to buy four separate mansions mm-hmm. demolish them and rebuild a super mansion and by the way rich neighbors are like fuck this noise because I bought a house for you know x amount of millions and now you're making this neighborhood a place where I'm not I mean It's funny because they're gentrifying the richest neighborhood (laughs) that you possibly could. And this is not, oh, these people, they've sacrificed their lives. This
2: is this type of person.
4: If I had a superpower, I'd like to be the conductor of an orchestra. What?
2: (laughs) So feel pity for the politicians who have to have a conversation with this woman. (laughs) Just like, God, I want power. But is this worth it?
1: Uh, from uh, c- CanadaBusiness.com, they look at their net worth, and in 2011, it was at $1.4 and by the end of 2018, it was $3.2 So mm-hmm. they've doubled their net I- w- worth in the last decade. And honestly, I mean... Six years. <laughs> yeah. Or seven years. Seven years, Eight. yeah. So, I mean, and this this has a great chart, and it says 61% is uh, public. Uh, let's see. Stock. It's price, yeah, exactly. 8% is private. uh Real estate, 2%, and then the uh, 29% is other. I love when numbers like that show up. We just, we just don't fucking know how the rest, 30% of the net worth is all built, you know? But uh, that is Heather Reisman for you. I mean, and there's a few other cases where she chose to exclude book sales of Mein Kampf, as well as uh, the magazine that had the Charlie Hebdo. Uh, publication and oh yeah, listen. This is a person that's on the Bilderberg Group. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you can talk about. Oh, she seems to be very connected. It's like, yeah, her fucking uncle was on the Canada United States Free Trade Agreement. This is a person that's been connected since birth.
3: He cool. saw. He helped write the agreement. He that, was like a civil servant
1: in yeah, the he, trade department, mm-hmm. helping to write it. Right. He was the chief negotiator for for this free trade agreement. Yeah.
2: So, oh, send those jobs up here, right? Eh? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Oh,
3: uh, she was in the Bilderberg group for a while, right?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't... Or still is? She is still in the Bilderberg group. Um, I don't know how long she's been in it, but I mean, I feel like that's one of those organizations where you you only leave in a box, if you know what I mean. (laughs) It's pretty... (laughs) It's pretty loaded even to
2: mention the Bilderberg <laughs> Group right. on a podcast. Weren't you saying the Bilderberg Group was co-founded by a Nazi?
1: Yeah, I, I looked at uh, this thing because I was I was looking it up slowly and this is from theclever.com. There's a 19 shocking facts and theories about the Bilderberg Group and the original one seems pretty credible. It's that founded by an ex-Nazi and an agent of the Vatican, hmm. uh, the co-founders of Bilderberg Group were two historical figures with checkered backgrounds. They were Prince Bernhard from the Netherlands and Josef Rettinger who was a political adversary advisor originally from Poland who worked with the Vatican. So well,
2: he would just be turning in his grave if he knew that <laughs> his organization would go on to ban his Bible, Mein Kampf. Yeah. Uh, well, the Builder I don't know, maybe at some point we'll engage
3: with the Bilderberg group directly. Yeah. But it seems like so they've been around for a while and there's like a core that actually it's just they just set up a, a large me- scale meeting every single year. And some of the Bilderberg group stay on for many, many years, and, like, they're they're just administering this conference. Right. Mm-hmm. And then other ones kind of jump in and out, and they want, like, new sort of thought leaders mm-hmm. to come in and speak at these things. It's right. pretty interesting. You can look up some of the old agendas from, like, past conferences. Mm-hmm.
1: All the world's a stage, man. That's all I fucking know. Yeah. The destruction of the U.S. dollar, the if fucking population reduction using pandemics, media censorship, trade zones. Working for the end of national sovereignty and the big enchilada. New world order, motherfucker.
2: Yeah, if you have an Adderall prescription, feel free to just log on to (laughs) prisonplanet.com and start clicking on links to do more research about the Bilderberg Group, and you'll eventually get the truth. Crush
1: your Adderall and (laughs) snort it, and then really go down a couple of YouTube uh, wormholes. (laughs) If
2: you want to learn more, (laughs) uh, very
1: important to have a methamphetamine problem first. We we'll choose um, to do it at an indigo location and at a public library. She thinks public libraries are becoming obsolete in the future. She said that in interviews, and it's like, <laughs> bitch, you got the money to fucking fund these libraries. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's gonna be
2: obsolete. Yeah, at least Amazon's not putting them in a box. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but with the time we have left, I just wanted to highlight a couple cases of Jerry Schwartz and his company causing you know damage, real mm-hmm. damage to real people. And uh, though I did want to mention first, uh, there's this Straight.com article. It's about Canadian politics. Um, They quote uh, Stephen Clarkson uh, wrote a uh, study of the Liberal Party, the Canadian Liberal Party, called The Big Red Machine. And just quoting from it in 1988, the federal elections, uh, he says, In Toronto, the prominent billionaire businessman Gerald Schwartz took charge of fundraising, pleading with other executives that while they may not like um, the then-candidate Turner's position on free trade, Mm -hmm. they should still shell out generously to the Liberal Party, lest the Socialist... NDP sneak up the middle to exert a controlling voice in a minority government. Hmm. Um, and so this is, you know, just kind of shows you that Jerry Schwartz's influence in liberal politics in Canada has gone all the way back to 1988, at least, if right. not before then. Um, they talk, we talked earlier how close he was to liberal Prime Minister Paul Martin, um, conservative Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Uh, his chief of staff was a guy named Nigel Wright, who was an executive at Onyx. Um, He took a temporary leave, Nigel Wright did, took a temporary leave from Onyx in 2010 to become Stephen Harper's chief of staff. Uh, He had to leave in 2014 because there was a major bribery scandal in Canada where Nigel Wright wrote a uh, bribery check for (laughs) $90,000 to a Canadian senator, probably with Stephen Harper's knowledge, but Stephen Harper made the decision to throw him under the bus. So he has to resign as Stephen Harper's chief of staff and then he goes immediately back to work for Onyx. Mm. So it just shows their influence where they're Control, uh, they're so influential in these liberal governments, but then the conservatives come in and their fucking exec is the chief of staff who uh, leaves their company and then immediately comes back to it. Um, and you know, uh, one other thing I wanted to mention with regards to Israel um, Schwartz and uh, Heather Reisman have uh, founded a charity called the Heseg Foundation for Lone Soldiers, which provides money to cover tuition and living expenses for non Israelis who serve in the Israeli army. Uh, that's again from that Straight.com article, but it's just kind of disturbing. Where it's like, "Hey, if you don't have family in Israel and you want to go be a mercenary psychopath, they'll pay you money to go <laughs> fucking unload on nurses in the Gaza Strip." It's Like
3: right uh, a right wing Lincoln Brigade, right? Uh, to go to go uh, snipe Palestinian kids who are throwing rocks. So a superpower.
1: <laughs> if I had a superpower. I'd like to be the conductor of an orchestra.
2: She made Army. <laughs> she is. She's the conductor of an orchestra that plays Ave Maria <laughs> for Palestinian children. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so, you know, and again, we could spend all day going through all the different deals of Onyxes. But I want to s- highlight two private equity deals because these touch on a lot of themes we've covered with all these kind of private equity billionaires we've run into. And these two cases are Save-A-Lot and a company called Abco or Mana, uh, Magna Tracks. Mm-hmm. We'll start with Save-A-Lot. Save-A-Lot, uh, if you live in the United States, you may or may not know, it is the second largest U.S. discounter after Aldi. Um, they have about, uh, or at least uh, as of 2019, they had about 1,115 stores. Um, but interesting thing about those stores, 698 of them are licensees. They're like, uh, they're not controlled by the corporate entity. They're right. licensed out to... Um, Oh, franchised? Yeah, franchised out. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's interesting where there's been this lawsuit, according to uh, uh, WinsightGroceryBusiness.com, there's been this lawsuit where a group of um, uh, veterans who invested into getting licenses for these Save-A-Lot stores have sued Onyx. Um, In the U.S. Eastern District of Missouri, alleging that Onyx had a, quote, secret plan to transform the company from a licensee-based system to a corporate-owned store model so it could then flip to a competitor such as Aldi. Um, And the basic allegation here is that they had, you know, this business that's more than half controlled by these licensees or franchisees. They want it to bankrupt the licensees right. and then just sell all of the corporate controlled stores to another entity because that's more valuable. That's kind of how the Aldi business model works. And, you know, Aldi might buy it if they didn't have to deal with these licensees. mm mm-hmm. And so this is uh, a group—the uh, plaintiffs are a group of store owners composed of U.S. Navy and Marine veterans who invested in Save-A-Lot stores in 2015 in part to support a mission of uh, bringing grocery stores to underserved uh, trade areas. These are what are called food deserts in the United States, mm-hmm. a lot of rural areas. There's just not enough people living there, so they can't get fresh vegetables at any sort of profitability. So they, there are these food deserts in the United States. It's, it's a real tragedy. Um, the, the veterans group opened about 10 Save-A-Lot stores from 2015 to 2017 in places like South Carolina, Oklahoma, Kansas, Virginia, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but basically, they go through, and, and the lawsuit's very fascinating, but just to give you the nuts and bolts, they talk about how um, that at times Save-A-Lot, the corporate entity, when Onyx took it over, first thing they did was they fired everybody at the corporate entity who was responsible for like dealing with the licensees. You know, like, they fired uh, a bunch of people who were trying to, uh, you know, manage the franchises and just kind of stripped that division out entirely. Right. And then they also, according to this complaint, Save-A-Lot prices, which the corporate entity sold to the licensees at wholesalers, the prices were so high that, quote, at times it was cheaper for plaintiffs to purchase inventory from their local competitors across (laughs) the street at retail prices (laughs) than to purchase the the inventory from Save-A-Lot at... uh, these uh, quote-unquote wholesale prices. Right. So they're just oh overcharging their licensees, trying to drive them out of business. They're cutting off all of the corporate people who can actually like deal and help they're with their They're just like licenses. burning
3: all of their business, uh,
1: burning all of their bridges, basically, yeah. with their suppliers.
2: And they're literally called Save-A-Lot. That's
1: mm-hmm. the name of the fucking store, and they're fucking over their in in franchise to owners. You to save a lot, <laughs> your input should probably be reasonably priced yeah. so you can actually make a profit. Yeah, precisely.
2: Right. And, and so it is just something where another part of it is that these uh, licensees, these veteran veterans groups who bought in in 2015, 2017, they allege that the corporate entities save a lot, gave them fake data, fake sales data, fake price data and all this other shit to lure them into, you know, purchasing a license. And then they were just trying to extract money from them. And then as soon as they actually owned and operated the license, like we said, they're getting uh, goods sent to them uh, where it's like, They'll make an order and like half of it won't be delivered or a bunch of goods won't be delivered. It's all way overpriced, even though it's quote unquote wholesale. They can't get anybody from the corporate office to respond because all those people were fired. Mm -hmm. You know, so it is just something where they allege very credibly, and this lawsuit is ongoing, that Onyx's entire strategy was to purposely bankrupt them, purposely steal their money, defraud them by lying to them when they bought those licenses. And then once they bankrupt all the licensees, they were going to try and flip it to Aldi or one of the other competitors. Yeah,
1: predatory practices to make a profit because fuck people
2: that need groceries. I want to make more money. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and so Save-A-Lot is currently um, in kind of free fall of profitability. You know, their uh, long-term EBITDA has, like, fallen all kinds of ways, just according to the same article. It's fallen from $200 million uh, over uh, in the fourth quarter of 2016 to just $13 million wow. in the most recent third quarter of 2019. Um, and they just recently refinanced, save a lot did with um, the majority of their lenders. They refinanced uh, about 130 million. They got 138 million in new capital. They cut their debt by more than 400 million. But it's like, in terms of profitability, Onyx has really just driven it into the ground. So it's, uh, I mean, we'll see what happens with the business, but it's a very fucked up story where they did that to these people who, you know, had a. I think noble mission of trying to serve underserved communities and just got absolutely fucked and defrauded by these, you know, fucking venomous snakes yeah. at Onyx corporate and yeah. Fucking vultures and leeches. Mm-hmm. Snakes, vultures and leeches. Mm-hmm. And so we'll, we'll see what happens with that lawsuit. But the the last case I wanted to highlight is something that I think is very important to the private equity business model that uh, we've talked about it a little bit. But I want to just spend a little bit of time here. And this is uh, what's called fraudulent conveyance or fraudulent transfer Um, Just to quote from Yves Smith at Naked Capitalism, she's written a lot about this. Uh, private equity firms are seldom sued for their practices of levering companies for fun and profit and not caring much if they leave smoldering wreckage in their wake. One big reason has been that it takes a lot of time and effort to prove fraudulent conveyance, which is layperson terms, meaning uh, meaning means continuing to bleed cash out of a company into your own pocket when you know it is a goner. And to discourage these suits, private equity's uh, general partners go into the legal version of scorched earth mode to deter other Bankruptcy victims from getting bright ideas. Mm-hmm. So basically, if a company is um, uh, pushed into bankruptcy, the creditors do have the ability to sue um, if they believe fraudulent conveyance was done. Like this company was pushed into bankruptcy, and then its assets were stripped out. Right. You know, it's uh, like a mafia bust out. It's functionally equivalent. Um, and these suits are very hard because, of course, you know, private equity fights back with scorched earth tactics because they can't allow a precedent to be established. It's very hard to prove. There's you mm-hmm. know a short statute of limitations. But Onyx actually did have to settle one of these lawsuits. And this is, you know, um, the uh, case of a, um, a U.S. custom metal building systems manufacturer called uh, Magnetrax Corporation. It was originally called uh, ABCO, A-B-C-O. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Canadianunderwriter.ca writes up about this. Um In 2014, uh, the Ontario Superior Court Justice wrote a decision, uh, a major theme of this complaint, this fraudulent uh, conveyance complaint. This is the trustee of the bankruptcy. This uh, company, Magnatrex, was driven into bankruptcy in 2003 after, um, I believe, in 1999, uh onyx bought it out and it was bankrupt in 2003 the trustee of the bankruptcy sued them for fraudulent uh conveyance and a major theme of the complaint was that onyx caused the bankruptcy uh acting through its directors it direct it ordered Magnatrex to take a number of highly leveraged acquisitions that benefited Onyx and its directors at the expense of the Magnatrex creditors. Uh, these alleged wrongful acts of the Onyx directors were committed in their capacity as Onyx directors. Uh, they included breach of their fiduciary duty to Magnatrex, fraudulence conveyance of Magnatrex assets, and unjust enrichment. So basically, simply enough, Onyx buys this company. It orders the company to bankrupt itself in order to enrich Onyx, and it doesn't give a shit. And also, the, so private equity is constantly getting, like, management fees
3: mm-hmm. for for the assets that it acquires. And, like, to a certain extent, they're allowed to um, offload debt onto the companies they acquire. But there are limits to how much, like, there are limits to how much that can be conveyed in these deals. Right. And it's very easy to just hide, like, what is, like, these illegal conveyances in the midst of all of these fees that are going back and forth.
2: Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, you know, so Onyx has to eventually settle this lawsuit for about nine and a half million dollars. Um, they try to get it thrown at a bunch of times, and you can actually read through if you go to k- casetext.com or courtlister.com. This is Kipperman v. Onyx Corporation. You can read through the documents, and it's pretty fascinating. There's very long, lots of legalese, but the basic claim, or just quoting from it, the plaintiff's claims that uh, transfers uh, were accomplished through um, the breach of fiduciary duty, were concealed from Magnetrex entities. Uh, basically that Onyx uh, used Magnetrex to buy up two other companies, which made Magnetrex functionally insolvent. And then they just kind of collected the fees on top of it. You know, they buy these companies on debt using shell companies. They connect, collect interest on this. They connect, collect their management fees. And I just want to highlight one thing about the management fee here. Um So they, you know, they sue this company, and Nigel Wright, we mentioned him earlier, he was the chief of staff to conservative prime minister Stephen Harper. He was an Onyx executive involved with this deal. Um, He was uh, put under deposition for this to ask about the management fees. Mm -hmm. So he's asked, can you tell me specifically what Onyx Corporation did for the company ABCO um, that falls under paragraph two of the management agreement? Answer, what we did for them? question uh-huh Uh, And then uh, he says this, Nigel Wright says this, we would be involved in, you know, reviewing and working with the management on corporate and strategic plans, you know, in terms of where to take the company, you know, you saw the list of the other acquisitions opportunities uh, that were suggested and we would work with them in reviewing those, understanding how they fit in the company's strategic plans, whether or not we could do them, you know, how else we were going to grow the business, reviewing the company's budgeting process, forecast, succession planning, blah, blah, blah. This goes on for like another paragraph, (laughs) but you read it and it's like one sentence. This guy is bullshit. <laughs> He's just <laughs> saying business terms like, yeah, we did this, yeah, you know, we did we this. Right, f- uh, provide forecasts of Abita uh, and,
3: uh, yeah. you know, um, strategic planning.
2: But so this is just a guy who's subpoenaed like, so you guys are collecting your management fee, whatever it is, whether it's 2 or 20% or however much they're paying. This insolvent company is paying a management fee every quarter. And they ask him, what are you doing for that Management fee? And he just gives a clearly Bullshit answer. And then just one last quote From this, plaintiffs asked uh, Jerry Schwartz um, and uh, Nigel Wright if they could point to any record or documentation indicating what services the defendants provided to the debtors under the management agreement or when these services were provided. They could not. They could not point to one fucking document that indicated (laughs) what they did to collect this management fee. Um, uh, Wright testified that there was no internal policy requiring the individuals at onyx to keep track of these services the debtors received invoices specifically detailing specific expenses to be reimbursed but these invoices did not include any listing of the services provided plaintiff presented testimony illustrating that onyx employees were sometimes confused as to who was providing services for example hilson testified that a guy named uh Iwat Hersink provided services, but Hersink himself just stated, quote, I personally did not provide any of these (laughs) services, unquote. (laughs) The management agreement provided for the debtors to pay large sums of money to defendants for, quote, investment banking services, unquote, yet plaintiff pointed to testimony indicating that, one, no employees at Onyx was an investment banker, two, the debtors um, found these two companies as possible acquisitions by themselves, and three, the debtors had independent investment bankers and so you know yeah. and it just goes on from there but it is something we've talked about on this podcast yeah. where you know hedge funds and private equity they get these management fees it's not clear what they're doing for these management fees and in this case it's like there is a smoking gun they weren't doing shit yeah. this is just fraudulent conveyance they are mm-hmm. just collecting their little fees off a bankrupt company for doing nothing enriching themselves well, driving the company to the ground and destroying jobs this is no this is what's known in the private equity
3: world as the chaos is a ladder strategy. <laughs> so you're using you're using one company to underwrite the acquisition of more companies. Right. Right. <laughs> in order to underwrite your outside investment banking deals to acquire more. Because hmm. you said that they're using uh, what is it called?
2: Magnet uh, Magnetrex. Or Magnetrax. I they, were using back,
3: they were using the assets of Magnetrax to underwrite the acquisition of
2: other companies. Right. That was sort
3: of like it's a it's a ladder.
2: <laughs> it's a it's a chaos ladder. <laughs> And this is the fucking private equity business model. Like, you yeah. know, as we quoted earlier, the majority of times they get away with this shit. In this case, the evidence was compelling enough that they had to settle. And uh, just reading one, la- uh, one last thing from it, plaintiff contends in some that uh, Jerry Schwartz set up the leverage buyout structure of the acquisitions in such a way that they insulated Onyx from risk and increased the risk of the debtors' creditors. Onyx forced the debtors to incur massive debt, knowing that the debtors' management had made aggressive financial uh Financial projections and three Onyx collected transaction fees, increased management fees, and increased valuations for its stock and quote option value with little concern about the ultimate solvency of the debtors. So, you know, the evidence was compelling enough. They tried to get this thing thrown out, but they had to settle. And it's just a kind of a fucked up story where we talk about all these private equity billionaires. They all do this shit. Right. And the vast majority of the time they get away with it. But it's just. I mean, it's worth remembering. These are fucking mobsters. These are bust-out strategies where they just fucking asset-strip companies, run them into the ground, collect their management fees, and they're worth billions of dollars. And they get to also run bookstores into the ground as, (laughs) you know, projects to distract their wives. It seems to me that private equity is a game, and that game is snakes and ladders. Um... but, you know, and so recently Onyx bought uh, WestJet, a Canadian airline, for about $5 billion leverage buyout. Mm-hmm. We'll see what they do with it, but it's probably going to be, you know, like charging people 50 cents to go to the bathroom <laughs> in flight or, uh, or you know, whatever else. Like charging for snacks, probably just increasing fees, cutting staff, firing people, um, cutting, making the service worse but more expensive. Of course. And then they can flip it again. But the jokes, Sean, the mm-hmm. jokes that are going to be written...
1: Back in my day, we didn't have to spend 50-cent Bitcoin to take a piss on a plane. <laughs> sure, I'd do it in the glass of
2: water they give you, but that's two Bitcoin right there. You were fixing airline peanut prices. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but is there anything else we didn't get to about Jerry Schwartz and Heather Reisman? It's a you know it's a fascinating story, and I'm sure our Canadian listeners know a lot more uh, that can be covered. But these are the kind of people that are supporting Pete Buttigieg. You know these right. they clearly want something, and you know if Pete Buttigieg talks about you know limiting Amazon or whatever else, well Heather Reisman has a big interest in that. Certainly. Uh, certainly, you know they don't want Medicare for all in the United States with all their healthcare investments, and mm-hmm. they would like to lobby the Canadian government to privatize the healthcare system there as well. Uh, so they clearly have the ear of Justin Trudeau and just whoever's in power that's not the NDP. Uh, yeah and with that this has been Grub Stickers
1: I'm Yogi Powell. I'm Steve Jeffers
2: I'm Sean P. McCarthy thanks for listening check out our Patreon side to uh, hear us cover one of the billionaires who uh, supports Joseph Biden in the Democratic primary and also shout out to our listener uh, Patreon listener Jason Matthews for suggesting the topic of this episode feel free to hit us up anytime if you have uh, ideas for who we should cover on the show thanks for listening
1: Bye. rest in peace Black Mamba <laughs> But Did you hear about that? I, no, what happened? Kobe Bryant died. Be dead. <laughs> He's dead. I'm serious. Really? Yeah, he died in a plane crash. A helicopter. It just happened.
0: Your thoughts about the death of Kobe Bryant. Well, it's it's shocking. And I think we're all still in shock about what happened. And I think it's a reminder that our lives are often touched by people we never even meet. And there are millions of people, not just in Los Angeles, but around the world right now, mourning because they were inspired by what he did on the field, what he meant off the field. And it's also, of course, uh, uh, such a a tough human moment to think about, that he was spending time with his daughter. And her loss is unthinkable, as is that of everybody who was on that helicopter. And and I think all of America is united in mourning and and sending our love and our thoughts and, and of course, our prayers to the families. Thank you.
2: My rule to never get on a helicopter with a billionaire is undefeated. (laughs) Ah. Kobe Bryant, you should have listened to the Patreon. That's-